Hello, I am Mary Ellen Harn of Capgemini, and welcome to the fourth episode in our Back to the Future podcast series that we are doing with our colleagues at Microfocus. This podcast series focuses on topics that involve tomorrow's quality engineering that is happening today by taking a deep dive into the content of Capgemini's recent world quality report. If you find our podcast informative, Please link them on SoundCloud and share them with your network of colleagues. Last time, we defined intelligent automation. We talked about where we think it will evolve to and discussed what's needed from automation engineers to make it happen. In today's podcast, we'll focus on implementing and benefiting from intelligent automation. I want to welcome back Archie Robostoff, who is the product director for UFT and Loadrunner at Microfocus, and Jeff Smith, who is a manager with Capgemini's financial services technology practice. Archie, uh, could you just give us a brief reminder about yourself and Microfocus? Good morning, Archie Robostov here from Microfocus. I'm a portfolio director, and Microfocus is a enterprise software company focused on helping organizations deliver, manage, and deploy their enterprise software assets. Thank you, Archie. And Jeff, can you refresh our memories about what you do for Capgemini? Of course. Um, as you said, I'm a manager for Capgemini. Um, I currently am contracted to work directly with the client as an automation lead, and I help them also leverage new technologies and methodologies to help improve the testing practice. Well, thank you, Jeff and Archie, and, and thanks again for joining me. And let's get right back into the discussion on intelligent automation. So, while our automation frameworks are becoming more intelligent, do we believe that it's also making them more difficult to understand? And how are we simplifying the application of these frameworks? Jeff, let's start with you. Okay, so originally um, what we would do is we would develop all the way from the function, the coding level of whatever application we were using, um, develop specifically for that application to make sure we were testing um, all the requirements of the manual test cases. And now we're kind of moving on to a point where we can build um, scriptless solutions and other types of frameworks that are uh, more simple to understand. We can give them to people who have an understanding of automation, but maybe not an understanding of coding in itself. And are able to take those common language points and use them to automate those test cases themselves while the automation team, the center of excellence or Whoever is in charge of that code base would then make those updates and provide all of the keywords and functionality we would use to be able to automate those applications. Um, so it kind of limits the coding experience to specific members of the team, um, allowing for um, less knowledge but more efficiency in those specific solutions. Um, we can also bring in other types of testing to make those more advanced types of testing simpler within those solutions. So you can add in API and mainframe keywords and such so that we're using advanced technologies within those solutions. Um, and it kind of expands the uses of automation outside of just text, test execution and such. Archie, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think, I think Jeff, you, you hit it on the head. I mean, it's funny how when we add more sophistication to try to make our lives more simple. You know, one of the sort of uh, side things that happens is that the environment gets more complicated sometimes. So, you know, we, we I think we've had multiple attempts to try to simplify um, a very complicated automation ecosystem. I mean, if you think about uh, what testers and dev testers are doing, they're using uh, newer SDKs, they're using newer languages, 
Um, you know, there's always a new flavor of the month that they have to fit in. And, you know, before you know it, you've got, you know, seven or eight different automation languages being used. You've got a couple of frameworks. Maybe you're trying to wrap that all together with keyword driven testing uh, or, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, state driven testing or whatever it is. So uh, I think that's been one of the side effects that really hasn't been so positive. But the good news is that we, we absolutely see kind of what Jeff was saying is that it's almost like we've got this layer of abstraction that's being put on top of all that. Um, and so, you know, we've got uh, natural language processing interfaces to, you know, that abstraction layer so that it doesn't really matter what's getting sort of um, sort of driven underneath the automation lever, whether it's, you know, VB script or something older or something newer, you know, at least the business and the practitioners can see that sort of common language. Um, you also see sort of techniques like maybe a model-based approach where you orchestrate kind of the flow of everything. Um, and so to somebody like me or some, you know, some other practitioner that may be not so technical, I can absolutely see what this test is supposed to be doing in the context of what I know. But under the covers, there's some pretty sophisticated code going on that some people would be able to, you know, uh, collaborate with or add to that. So absolutely, we see that you know, there's this more simplification by abstraction, masking sort of the complexity, cleaning things up, um, because we want to sort of foster as much as we can, right? We want developers and testers to be able to use their frameworks, their SDK, their language of choice. But we don't want to overcomplicate things so badly that, you know, we start moving backwards in terms of productivity or efficiency. So if simplification is the goal and all of this is happening in the background, is there a single tool that will enable intelligent automation, or is it a series of tools that are integrated together? Yeah, it's a it's a question we're always being sort of challenged with. But it, my opinion is that um, it will be multiple interfaces because we do not. I do not believe that one size fits all. Right. I know that developers like to use different IDEs. Testers like to use their different frameworks. Business people like to use what they like to see, and you know it's probably going to be challenging for us or for anybody to deliver sort of one tool that kind of can fit in all those boxes. So, you know, our approach has been more of, you know, give the right interface um, to whoever's doing what they're doing, but in the background, have it sort of linked to the same core technology. Therefore you can get the same visibility. So everybody sees the same thing. Everybody sees all the activity, what happened last night in our runs, what's happening tomorrow. Do we have great coverage, but not necessarily everybody's using sort of the same uh, rubber stamped tool across because these jobs are different. So the interface will be different. So absolutely. We think, you know, to, to sort of wrap it all up, uh, multiple interfaces, but you got to find a way of having sort of a common lens um, to what the business and the quality and the development teams are all trying to do. That makes perfect sense. I mean, if you think about the complexity of what is happening here, but let's take this a step out further. Um, what would the reliance be on application developers and how do frameworks interact with other services such as TDM and TEM? And what about virtualization services? Archie, let's start with you and then turn to Jeff. So Archie? Yeah, the the reliance on application developers is actually becoming much more of a burden to those individuals. We're asking more and more of them. If you think about the, the original inception of why we wanted to get application developers more involved with testing was to try to catch things earlier in, in the life cycle before they became a big problem. You know, so the whole thing is, you know, they're building a little component. Okay, test that component. Does that component work? Great. 
Okay, now you're going to put it into your larger context of your application. Okay, does that all work? Great. Okay, now I'm going to check it all in. It's going to get reassembled and some, presumably some quality team later on will start doing more of the end-to-end stuff, right? So what we wanted to be able to do was give those practitioners, those dev developers, you know, the ability to do what they need to do, but not get in the way, right? So we've, you know, what we saw was this uh, advancement in IDE present tools that allow them to do what they needed to do. Um, but what we're seeing is that, you know, they're getting more burden because it's not just an isolated activity running tests on your own. Now that dev developer, what we usually refer to them as dev testers because that's what they're doing, you know, they're being asked to test their application on maybe three or four different device environments like iOS, Android, maybe just pure HTML5. They're being asked to support a number of different browsers. They're being asked to interface with a number of APIs. They're being asked to make sure it performs well. So you really need to look at how do you give these developers not only the ability to create tests, but to also execute them in a way that is meaningful and realistic. So if the developer needs uh, a bunch of different devices, make sure that the framework can handle that. Give them the devices in real time. Don't ask them to leave you know, their, their individual tool. If they need API virtualization or API testing within that context, it should be delivered seamlessly without them having to leave that tool because the last thing we want is to take that developer outside of their IDE. So even, you know, you you mentioned test data and all that. So, you know, we need to find a way of giving these developers all that access, even being able to set up a unit test, set up a, a more end-to-end test, inject performance in there, inject, you know, whatever masked realistic data is in there, give them access to those APIs. So all of that needs to be taken. Otherwise, you know, they're they're just becoming more of a bottleneck. So that's what we're seeing, giving them more capabilities, so that they can still do their job, which is a pretty hefty day job, by the way, um, and uh, not overburden them with the demands that being placed on them when it comes to quality. Let's turn to Jeff now. Thanks, Archie. Um, so I definitely agree. There's definitely um, a paradigm shift um, that's been going on for the last few years where, well, for longer than that, but from where instead of dev just doing dev work and doing the unit testing and such, we want to make the Q, the quality services teams shift left, go more of a DevOps model, and get more involved where the dev teams are working. So instead of the dev team having to take a bunch of time out to do all the testing, we kind of merge the testing team in with them, and we build and integrate our solutions as early in the life cycle as possible so we can go through and make sure that that testing um, is effective and is as soon in, the, soon in the cycle as possible to get rid of any defects and any issues and get them cleaned up. And co- It helps coordination between the automation team or the QS team and the developers. So we're working together, we're understanding the application and how it's developed, and then we're also testing it at the same time, as closely to the same time as possible. Um, that coordination um, is extremely effective um, to resolve defects, to resolve any data issues, or to have an understanding itself of the application and how it's developed. Um, and it kind of leads into different services um, what we like to call more resilient automation, um, where we can say, if you use containerization or virtualization services, you can say, I want to stand this environment up. I want to populate and provision all of this data into it. Then I want to run in this environment. I want to run the entire automation suite on this virtualized environment. And then when I'm done, I just want to clean it all up and I want to back out and make sure that everything did what it was supposed to. And it kind of just allows you to 
be able to stand up and test that environment, make sure that, you know, the test went the way that I wanted to and can always stand back up and be used properly. Yeah, Jeff, I was going to say that that's something we totally see right now is and, and that I think that's one of the bigger issues is um, I'm a dev tester. Uh, OK, now I need to provision these 15, 16, presumably maybe 20 different environments. How do I do it quickly? Do we really want to stand all those things up you know, and have them running all the time? Or do we want to have something that's flexible that I could literally spin up uh, a bunch of configurations, uh, bombard it with tests, and then bring it down? That's, that's something that uh, we absolutely recommend to, to all of our customers that are looking to do this because that is kind of at the heart of uh, what's causing a lot of these testers um, some, some problems to begin with. So 100% agree with that, that, that line of thinking. So, so basically, uh, do you have a recommended approach for a team to take to implement an intelligent automation platform? And what would the next steps be? And is there a current state that lends itself best to implementing an intelligent automation framework? Are there any prerequisites? It seems like there's a lot of work to be done here. And is there a best practice or a best approach to do this? Uh, Archie, why don't you, we start with you and then we'll turn to Jeff. Yeah, I would say... The, the the best advice is don't don't over rotate and and freak out and try to rebuild everything right because in, what we see for the most part is all of our customers have some pretty sophisticated automation environments that you know have been built up over many years right so they've learned the hard way how to get to where they are today um, you know what we would say is you know find those those areas that are most problematic and if the area of problem for uh, your organization might be that, okay, you just don't have enough environments or, you know, okay, sort that out. Uh, but what we're finding when it comes to some more intelligent automation platforms is, is you know, find those, those objects or those apps that are, um, you know, causing havoc that are consistently breaking, or maybe you've got a vendor that's constantly changing their UI and it's breaking your automation constantly. Um, start with those and then work backwards. Um, you know, we've seen utilities and we've, we've got some in some of our tools where, you know, as you run the automation, it gives you a little bit of guidance saying, hey, this, this module that you've been having problems with or this object, um, you know, you could turn that into an AI based object to maybe help you out. So, you know, take measured steps, start looking for areas where AI, when it comes to, you know, object recognition and resiliency, start looking at, at some of those and cataloging those transactions and then backing your way in. And then start to figure out, I mean, actually interview, talk to the practitioners, right? What is your biggest problem? Oh, your biggest problem is that you can't get access to those six APIs you need. Great. Okay. Find ways of, you know, virtualizing those or whatever it might be. So, you know, I think what we like to do is fix a problem, take a step back, measure it a little bit, see the outcome and then jump back in. Because a lot of times that some of these good benefits have unintended consequences downstream streams. So you don't want to necessarily implement a whole bunch of changes right away uh, because there could be chaos and you could be dealing with things or symptoms of things that you've never seen before. So our advice would be start there, take measured steps, don't over rotate. Um, so that's, that's how we would approach it. Jeff, would you do the same approach or something different? Right. Actually, listening to RT talk, um, you talked about um, using AI and different things to kind of help expand upon um, your technical ability. But there are also tools available in the market that can help you with analytics as well, um, using AI and ML and thinking structures like that where you can really define where in your stage you're finding the most issues and what 
will provide you the most value. Um, you can, you know, do defect prediction and things like that and kind of get a roadmap, a heat map um, of issues and things that you're seeing in your specific environment and then use that to, to define the solution or the approach that you want to take in regards to um, your current and future technology architecture. You can use that information to help define, you know, do you need uh, more data services? Do you want to be able to move into the cloud? Do you want what type of architecture are you going for? Are you more of a mobile type of application? Are you using more UI applications? Are you API or mainframe level? You know, there's all sorts of technologies and such that will help prove the roadmap that you want to take. And, and no one can tell you what that's going to be. So the best way to do it is to take your time, find solutions that will let you know where your issues lie, do some analytics, figure things out, and then move forward with, you know, the best plan that you can come up with at the time for your specific architecture. Thank you, Jeff. But is intelligent automation something that only automation engineers will benefit from, or does this have a broader, wider reach? So, Archie, what do you think about this? Definitely got a broader reach for sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think I've said before, maybe it was in our previous podcast as well, that uh, across multiple verticals in industry, AI is a buzzword, right? But when it comes to uh, automation, it is absolutely precision focused on solving a problem. And that has to do with that, you know, object identification, resiliency, something moves, it still works. Um, but that's literally just, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. Um, you know, we, we absolutely see that uh, AI and machine learning and intelligent automation is going to go much more beyond the practitioners today, such as, you know, being able to open up testing to more people more uh, less technical people using natural language processing being able to you know take maybe somebody that was doing a manual test before and actually turn those manual steps into automation um, we're also starting to see uh, use cases in terms of transaction harvesting so what's going on out there in the real world pull that in document that to me and then i can make a decision do i really need to be automating everything everywhere stuff that's been around for 20 years we still have regression tests for or should we maybe focus be focusing on some of the more leading edge things that are being more business critical or the things that are most used so it, again you'll have that information to to make that determination um you know and then you know being able to leverage that just to make sure that okay we created a test how effective was that test what did that do to maybe some of our public rankings on some of these app stores or whatever it might be but I, th I think we are just getting started with intelligent automation and I'm pretty excited because it, it's already uh, pretty effective. I mean, we're, we're, we're changing uh, the rules, so to speak, with just what we're doing today. And I can't even imagine once we start broadening the scope of this, um, what it's going to do to the overall delivery and quality ecosystem. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting to think about it. I definitely agree. I think that it improves efficiency. Um, you can see it in the quality services team almost immediately, just how much more uh, we usually use like test points for planning and such and to see how much, how many more, how much more points you can get per sprint, how further, how much further along you can get and how improved your cycles are actually going to be. Um, and then beyond that, you're going to see it within the development life cycle as well. If you're shifting left and you're getting involved in DevOps, how much faster does your team um, able to push out new functionality and get it tested and released and how, how fast, how much faster are you increasing that cycle of, um, release testing and such? The, the amount of data to your point, Jeff, the, the amount of data that a development and a testing and, you know, any delivery team 
amount of data they create is is insane. I mean, I think people want to do something with that data. Who's my most efficient developer under these circumstances? It's an enterprise application. It's got these types of customers. You know, it'd be awesome if there was an environment that would be able to, you know, kind of put all those data points together and make those intelligent, you know, informed decisions. Um, And that's, I think, where we're heading. Uh, I even saw some interesting use cases where, um, automation was created automatically. I mean, can we say automated automation, I guess, without tripping up potentially? Uh, but we've seen where transactions were harvested. Um, they were pulled into the environment. Uh, and automation sort of was, was created automatically. And then the quality manager just literally clicked a button and says, yeah, that's the test we want to run. And there was very little interaction there. So if we see more of that, Combined with this analytical side of understanding, you know, sprint level sort of detailed metrics on individual developers, um, you know, all that stuff coming together. Oh, man, the possibilities are almost endless. And that's what we want. We want the, the organization to have the highest levels of quality and automation, but not really having to think about it or stress about it. It's just be running just like my home automation does. Right. I've got my lights that come on based on the luminance of, you know, where the sun is. Um, I don't really even think about it. I only think about it when it breaks, right? So that's ultimately, I think, what we want to get out of, you know, automation for, you know, software, right, is is to that point where you're not thinking about it. And if you do, something's wrong and you got to fix it. And okay, now we move on. So are we evolving to a point where manual testing will be over and everything will be automated? Oh, I... I don't, I mean, look, I think uh, there will always, in my opinion, at least, there will always be a time and place for manual testing because there, there's just some things that, you know, you may not want to apply automation to. But I mean, I think as a goal, you know, any sort of automation environment should look to have as little manual testing as possible. But I still think there will always be a time and place. And even some of those things that are being done on the leading edge, you know, it, it just might be more worth it just to do that very quickly. But you know, as a goal, maybe, but I don't think practically it'll ever happen. What do you think, Jeff? I I agree completely. I work directly with a client and every day I have to talk to a subject matter expert who can tell me something about that application that I didn't know before. Um, there's always going to be that level of um, intelligence and expertise on those applications and a better way to do what we're doing. And we're always going to need that uh, information. And there's, there's never going to be a place where everything can be 100% automated and there's no need for manual testing and that extreme um, expertise on those applications. So are we really saying that is is there still relevance to a testing team and will developers take over or, you know, what what's going to happen this here? Will the testing team transition into being just a support team? Well, so first of all, I think uh, the testing team will, I think, always be relevant. What we saw historically, and I think most people in this industry know that, you know, the center of excellence in the testing group is has now kind of been turned into uh, advice, guidance, best practice. Some of them get embedded into these DevOps teams. Um, so I think there's going to be more collaboration. Um, I absolutely think a testing team will still be relevant because if you think about it, like, Again, if you're building, you know, a car, let's say, you know, the, the person designing, well, I guess the robots, but, you know, as you're assembling the cars, you know, the, the, the person designing the engine is going to be testing individual engine components like unit tests would. Um, but somebody always at the end of the day needs to assemble everything, um, take sort of a, a higher level approach um, and run more end to end things. And then again, in, in that framework, 
how do they figure out how to get better end-to-end testing as part of that overall development process? So I just think everything's going to continue to evolve, but I, I wouldn't say that either team is irrelevant. Um, everybody's sort of fulfilling the need of what they need to do today. Um, and who knows what the needs are going to be in three, four, five years from now. So I just see more collaboration, uh, more guidance from the two and uh, helping each other out as we proceed. Right. I would say that there's going to be much more of a merger of the two teams than any separation of them would be. Um, it's really working hand in hand in how each team in each project and each company and each, you know, individual team is going to transition that work onto each other. You know, who's going to do what portion of the testing and how is that going to be implemented? And then what level of overall guidance is there going to be for your entire architecture? Right. So he said the end to end testing, that's always going to be important. How do you test, you know, your your flow from one application into the next? And how does that data move and how does it get tested properly by all those teams? And so we have center of excellence teams who provide an overall architecture and we push those teams down. And then that goes to the individual teams and they use it how they will. But it's different for each team. You know, everyone's going to have a different way that they want to work and that works best and most effectively for them. Yeah, and I think that bounce back between the two teams actually just keeps improving things, right? It's almost like the testing team would do something and say, hey, you know what, if the developers did this, it would make things easier. Hey, let's get with them, right? So I I, I fully agree. I, I think yeah, you you put it much better where you're going to see the merging of the team, you know, albeit virtually or whatever it might be, um, 100% agree. And the more they work together, they'll just influence each other, better techniques, better design approaches, um, better testing approaches. So 100% agree with that one. Right. I had a, an interesting example of that is that my current client, we actually talked to them about adding specific um, portions of the tests and like the way that they change their object names and such are defined based on how we're going to be seeing them. And that's not information, you know, that development team would normally have until you talk to the automation team and you see exactly what application and technology we're using to interact and how what you're putting into the development of that application and how we read that information in. And then you can transition that information and just subtly adjust it so that it's easier for both teams to move forward and streamline that process. That's something you're going to see the closer we tie together. Well, thank you, Archie and Jeff, for joining me today and sharing your insights. This wraps up today's podcast. Uh, To our listeners, you can go on SoundCloud and all major podcast apps and search, listen, and subscribe to Capgemini's World Quality Report podcast with MicroFocus. We will be back soon with the next podcast in the Back to the Future series, which will be about cloud's influence on testing. In the meantime, please connect with us on LinkedIn and Twitter and visit capgemini.com to download the report. And to learn more about MicroFocus, please visit microfocus.com. Bye for now. This is Designing Momentum, a podcast from Capgemini. Designing Momentum is a show about what it takes to build and maintain momentum in business. When the odds are against you, how do you forge your own path? Original ideas very rarely come from looking in the same place as you always look. So in this show, we'll be turning the spotlight in a different direction that you wouldn't necessarily think to look. Hosted by me, Frank Wammers, and with the help of Rachel Burford, International Women's Rugby World Cup winner, and experts in emerging technology in sport, we'll be exploring why what goes on in the boardroom isn't so different to what happens on the pitch. 
Make sure you subscribe now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.